Oh yeah, oh yeah, welcome back. This is episode two. S1E2, isn't that what they put on the screen on uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime when you're binging? Season one, episode two. We made it this far. I think episode one was a success. Thanks to my guest, Dan Perry, the movie titles genius, who is most famous for something that I know you've seen, which is the Star Wars crawl that he created for the original film. He had some choice things to say about the experience and just about the impact that it had on so many people. And I think he's... I don't know if he immediately appreciated what he was doing. I know he didn't when he was making it. The little film called Star Wars, which uh, nobody believed in, seemed to at at the time, and has now just become such a phenomenon. A big part of our lives and our culture and probably the most famous movie title ever. Thanks, Dan. Also, at the end of that, I put Dan on the spot and asked asked him for a logo, and he came through. And it's even got a hint of Star Wars in it. Uh, The blue that you see at the beginning of the movie, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, that's in the logo. That shade of blue. Or you could say it's R2-D2's blue. Either one I will take. Thank you so much, Dan. Now, for my next guest, I am standing on the banks of the L.A. River, which is about as unglamorous as it sounds. We're not known for our river. It's a wide concrete channel that leads all the way downtown and then out to sea eventually. Uh, On the banks of that river is Warner Brothers Studios, which is what I'm looking at now. Uh, It is exactly what you would expect a movie studio to look. If a movie about a movie studio was being made, that's what the studio would look like. About 12 very large sound stages where some of the most famous films and TV shows were ever made. Friends, ER, so many of them. Uh, Next to those big sound stages is a series of smaller buildings, and those are my focus today. That is where the Looney Tunes cartoon shorts are reputed to have been made. Those famous ones, Yosemite Sam, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, all of them there, voiced by Mel Blanc and directed by Chuck Jones and uh, created by just a large group of very talented animators. Just down the street from here, actually just down the river, also within view of the river, is the Walt Disney Studio. Needs no introduction there on the impact they had on animation and film. Well, my next guest witnessed all of it. He is a witness to what happened here in Toontown. His name is Floyd Norman. And uh, he has been in the business probably 60 years. The man's 87 years old. You'd never guess. There's no mileage at all on the brain. And his look is timeless. He has this black fedora, these round black glasses, and uh, he is as whip-smart and young as anybody I know. His memory's fantastic, and he's going to regale us with stories and uh, myths and legends from Hollywood and from the animation business. And he also lets slip a little bit of news that I think you're going to be kind of surprised to hear. Anyway, that's coming up. Floyd Norman, witness to Toontown history, and my next guest. So, let's get to it. My name is Gray, and this is Gray Zone. Gray Zone. I had to be there. I had to do that job. And there was no way in hell I was going to fail. 
and my hero is performing a script I wrote. You must have, at first, you didn't realize who you were talking to. I realized right away. All I could think is, oh, no. 2016 was a landmark year for my guests today. A documentary came out about him, and that is when the name of Floyd Norman became more household probably than it's ever been. But there is a lot more to Floyd Norman than 2016. There's a lifetime of filmmaking, specifically animated filmmaking. And that Floyd Norman, the star of An Animated Life, is with me now. Floyd, thanks for joining me on Gray Zone. Thank you, Graham. Happy to be here. Um, this is something that we did. Floyd and I did a series of interviews. Mm -hmm. I think there were six of them, and we explored your history. There were many. And uh, that was 10 years ago. <laughs> I remember it because it was the day after Barack Obama's reelection. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, in a similar setting flies. to like this. Yeah. And here we are. And I have to say, Floyd, that it was 10 years ago, but you look absolutely the same. Well, if only I felt absolutely the same. <laughs> well, that was I was fishing there, Floyd. You're, suppo old, you're supposed to say. I'm an old man now, Grandpa. You're supposed to say, Floyd. Yes, uh, no, you're so supposed to say, exactly Graham, you look the same, the same too. Oh, oh, I look exactly you don't, You're not much for hints, are you, Floyd? Yeah, no, no, I'm not, I'm not very good at picking up on those things. <laughs> uh, Excuse me, it's a slow day, you know. I'm uh, kidding, of course. Yes. But 2016 was when An Animated Life came out, which was a documentary that got all sorts of attention. I'm, but it was not something that you initiated, right? It was mutual no. friends got together. Uh, the director of... Uh, documentary about Drew Struzan right. uh, was initially made, and then you were the next subject. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, and, that's how it happened. Uh, how active were you in this thing? What was it like to be have cameras following you and, <laughs> and documenting your life, asking you all sorts of impertinent questions? Well, not, not many of us no. experience that. But thankfully, being a filmmaker, it's something I'm totally used to. So I did not find it intimidating. I did not find it unknowing because making movies is, that's what I do. So it felt, I know some people wonder, how did it feel? Well, it felt totally comfortable. I felt very much at ease. I just went about my daily duties. And uh, even though I had cameras <laughs> shadowing me throughout this whole process. We, it, we all hate that, don't we? <laughs> oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It, does, it doesn't bother me a bit. Floyd is, and I'm always embarrassed to talk about two things when I'm talking to you. Okay. And that is age and race, which always seems to come up when Floyd is spoken about. And I have neither. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, uh, they are definitely prominent and they are important. Right. And they are things that make you interesting. They're not the only thing, of course. Yes, they do. But uh, Floyd in June of 2022 just turned 87. Oh, okay. Did yeah. you know that? Did you count the Did you count the candles when? Uh, apparently, I did. <laughs> I, I, apparently, I'm 87 years of age, and uh, which is really weird because I remember when I took my grandfather to Disneyland, I, I finally felt the way he felt that day, <laughs> uh, like, like an old man. Well, you don't. You don't. Somebody don't seem to think like an old man. Okay. And that's why I made that comment at the top of the interview yeah. is that 10 years ago. Um, which I can't believe it's 10 years ago, but you, you really are the same Floyd that I've always known. 
You have eight decades of memories, presuming that you sort of remember when you were seven or younger. Yeah, That's eight decades. I can, assuming I can remember. Well, you can. It's In a, fact, a little bit later, we're going to do a little uh, exercise, a little fun. Yeah. I'm going to call it the Walk of Fame Roulette. Oh boy! And we're gonna I'm gonna spin the spin the wheel and wherever it lands on the certain stars on the Walk of Fame that I see often because I live yeah. near there. Oh yeah! And there's many names I have no idea who they are, but I will bet you yeah. that Floyd will know 75 to 100 percent of who those people are. You we're gonna think, we're gonna test you. You think so? Well, I don't know. I am old, but uh, we'll cut. We'll edit out what you don't, what you don't get right. Adrian's memory of, of uh, you know Hollywood stars. Is past. better. It's much better. Adrian is your wife. Adrian is my wife, um, and who, she's she's kind of like an amateur historian. She knows everything. She's got a great mind for film and for history. Yeah, um, and she is in your film, an animated life. Yes, yeah, she is. Which is currently. Let's do a little plug now. Mm -hmm. uh, Floyd is, as I said at the beginning. Uh, he is an animator that has been in the business for 60 years. Would you say that? An animator. See, once again, dare I use that term, because I was with an animator yesterday, uh, the great Glenn Keane. Now, there's an animator. Uh, to me, I'm only, <laughs> I'm a guy who's pretending to be an animator. Well, if you I, look I, at your I, I am. I have animated. Yes. But I'm not very good. If you look at your IMDb, yeah. you are listed, I think, as story for a great many films. Yeah. And that may be your strength, right? I, I would say that, right? You're a good story man, besides a great conversationalist. <sighs> but you are, um, well, you're still <laughs> sitting here. You were story on Jungle Book. You were story mm -hmm. uh, on what else? I, man I managed to keep them fooled through many a film. <laughs> This is the challenge this of interviewing is Floyd, in is this self-effacement makes if, it very difficult. If you, can, if you can keep fooling them, you can have a long, long career. And how did you fool them, Floyd? I'm going to play along. I, I, I just kept showing up. Uh huh. Even when they got rid of me, I kept coming back. Well, we'll talk know. about the times they got rid of you. I'm like Kramer on Seinfeld. <laughs> you know. Through the door again? Yeah, exactly. You know, they, 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 they try and they try, but Floyd keeps coming back. Why won't he go away? <laughs> well, here he is. He's still here. <laughs> and I'm still here. I won't go away. Uh, 87 and, and still going strong. And yeah. what, what are you working on these days since you're not going away? We'll jump forward before we jump back. Uh, I am now... That you can talk about. Yeah, I am now in talks with people that <laughs> whose names I cannot mention. And the project I'm not allowed to mention because I signed... A, I signed that paper, the paper that says shut up. Uh, <laughs> but what I find fascinating, and this is what I truly find fascinating, is that the kids uh, that I'm talking to, that I might be working with, are literally the age of my grandchildren. How's that for a, how's that for a career? I mean, the people that I'm gonna be working with, should I do this project? Should I do it? We don't know yet, but we're talking. But they're kids. They're kids. Never in my life, in my career, have I ever had a director's mother come up to me and say, I hope you work on my, my son's uh, project. And how do you say no to that? <laughs> that see, they, say, she knew that and he knew that. How do you say no to the director's mother? You know, so that, that, I find that really hilarious. So what can you talk about? 
you did a segment for Sesame Street, which impressed me because Sesame Street has been there as long as the yeah. moon has been in the sky for me. Yeah. That, that was kind of special because this was a couple of years ago. It was the 50th anniversary of Sesame Street. And I had worked on the first season of Sesame Street back, I think, around 1960, I don't know, 68? When did Sesame Street I think it was later than that. I think it was early 70s, early but 70s. I may be wrong. We have but, a studio audience with us today. Anybody remember? No, probably not. Anybody remember Sesame Street? Uh, but anyway, uh, it was the anniversary, the 50th anniversary show. They came out to Hollywood uh, to, to shoot the segments because uh, they knew they would have... Uh, access to a lot of celebrities, movie actors, TV stars, and people who had probably not appeared on that first season many, many years ago, but, but who would stop in and say hi to Kermit and Miss Piggy and all, all the... Not Miss Piggy. Not Miss Piggy? She's not a Sesame Street character. Oh, you're right. I'm, she's I'm, a, I'm sorry. I'm she's a the Muppet show. Okay. See, I'm, I'm, that, that was a nerd test, wasn't it? And yeah, I, and I passed. Done. <laughs> we know I, I, Jim Henson was was involved uh, with with Sesame Street back right. then. We but Cookie Monster. As a matter of fact, the uh, the character that I chose to uh, interact with when they said, "Would you mind stepping on camera and doing a bit with with one of the uh, Sesame Street characters?" I said, "Yeah, I, I'd love to do it if I can do it with Cookie Monster." That was your choice. My favorite character. Cookie, cookie, I love cookie. Mm, chocolate chip. Mm. So anyway, I, I... Is it the cookies or the monster that you that, that makes you feel that way? You know, they actually bake the cookies right there on set. I mean, it was amazing. They're not real chocolate chip cookies, but they look like it, and they kind of, you know, and they crumble. That's like decadent Hollywood cookies. for you. That's Hollywood. Even the puppets get yeah, gourmet. Yeah, yeah, but they, yeah. But, oh, but sorry, the I Muppets. Love, I love Cookie Monster. And all of the other uh, Oscar the Grouch, uh, you know, and of course Big Bird. So it, it was just a, a kick to be there at this uh, Hollywood stage, and we shot it, you know, in Hollywood somewhere, you know, some sound stage somewhere. <laughs> Not on Sesame Street in New York. Not in New York. Were. Although I did visit the uh, stage in New York. But you also directed a segment. You that uh, was one of those animated interstitials. Yeah, well, that's what I did back during the first season. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, tasked with creating these little, I called them like, you know, 60-second commercial spots, either 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Right, which is what they've been doing from the beginning. They'll do yeah, it for a number. The yeah. They, yeah, today's they, show is brought to you by the letter F. Right, and the F tunes, for football. the music, and all of those, uh, again, they for my generation, yeah. were, they're formative. The first yeah. things we remember, mm -hmm. those little interstitial segments between the longer segments with the yeah. Muppets or whatever. Right. And you did not only one of the longer segments, talking with Cookie Monster, but you directed or came yeah. up with the idea, the story for yeah. the one of those segments, and which one was that? You mean the, you mean the recent one? Oh well, well, there's more than one. Oh well, is there? <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't remember all the stuff. <laughs> but I there do. was the one with the basketball playing. There, yeah, there was, yeah, that, that's the recent one. Okay. that was the uh, yeah, I believe a 60 second spot that I wrote and directed. Uh, I, I uh, had some wonderful kids working with me on it because. I'm an old man now, and uh, I'm lazy. So I thought, why do all the work when I can get these marvelous, talented kids to do a lot of this stuff for me? So I'll just do the fun stuff. Now, to me, the fun stuff is writing and directing. So they had to 
you know, do all the all the hard work. That sound that does sound like the fun. And then I the can take the credit stuff. for it. Yeah. So. But uh, so I should have mentioned that. Sesame Street has been renewed, revived on yeah. HBO. Yeah. But it was also on PBS in the 70s, and For you worked years. on that too. For many years, yeah. Uh, PBS was the, our original. Our original show was on PBS back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And I think you showed me a cell from the original. Oh, yeah, the countdowns. I was yes. going to bring that today. Yeah, I had. We can pretend it's here. Yeah, it's, an original animation cell. We did these things called the countdown, which you had this rocket ship and you had all of the celebrities and they were gonna launch the rocket and then they would count down, you know, nine, eight, seven, six, five, you know, and that down to the liftoff, something zany would happen. Something wacky would happen, like the phone going off just now. <laughs> See, there's always, that's, that's the hazard there's always a surprise. In, yeah. Bringing in the, the free uh, audience members. Um, <laughs> So that, that's exciting. That's just one of the many things that you've been doing over the last uh, several years. Yeah. And uh, that was post-Disney. Mm. You left Disney in 1966, I think, 66. for the first time. Yeah, when, we, when Walt passed away in 1966, that was my first departure from Disney. And we will uh, talk about before 66, yeah. uh, coming up here in just a little while. Oh, Floyd I Norman know. is my guest on Gray Zone. Uh, Walt Disney's first black animator. What? That, that's the <laughs> that's the way you're you're spoken of. That's the way you're often introduced. I'm yeah. uncomfortable doing it. I think you're uncomfortable hearing it. Yeah. But that's the other thing. It was the age and the race is always yeah. seems to be the, the age uh, and the race two things that come the up. Bad and the beautiful. But you talk to Floyd and the bold and the brave. Suddenly neither are evident. Suddenly neither <laughs> seem to be the most important thing, which is your just your your contribution to film and, and television, et cetera. Yeah, so, just another annoying kid who wanted to get into the movies. And you did. And that, what I really want to do is direct. And you've done, but which nobody, you've done. But nobody will let me. Well, that's what this, <laughs> that's what this immensely yeah. influential podcast oh, is going to achieve That's for you. going to change my life, change my career. That, that was the biggest laugh line so far. <laughs> Floyd Norman, yeah. welcome back. You he bet. was just telling me during the break that this feels a bit like a police interrogation, the way we've set up these, there's a table here and there's a light over our heads and I have a folder in front of me. <laughs> and then I say, Floyd Norman, where were you? 1951. No, well, let's start it, actually it's more like Mr. <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> See, the Matrix. Oh, of course. That, that was the real interrogation. Keanu Reeves and, uh, you know, in, in the Matrix, sitting in that room, that scared the dickens out of me. Well, that begs the question, Floyd, are we actually in a Matrix? Probably. Okay. Yeah. 1951. When was, you were a fresh face, yeah. young man who grew up in Santa Barbara, California. Your parents had moved there from the South, right? From Natchez, Mississippi. A place I've never visited. Are there Normans there? Have you ever looked up? I have no idea. There, there could very well be. And there, they moved well to be. Santa Barbara. I guess it was part of what was called the Great Migration from the South to the West and the North. Um, well, kind of a special migration because what had happened, my Aunt Esther, 
who worked for wealthy people back in those days, they would summer in Santa Barbara, California. So that's how my aunt uh, became aware of Santa Barbara, California and said, oh my goodness, I have found the promised land. And this would have been the teens, 19... Wow. Yeah, early uh, um, part of the century. Yeah. And yeah. I think she said, didn't she tell the rest of your family, get out here as fast as you can? Oh, you bet. You bet. And so um, my family, you know, and a, a number of them packed up and moved to Santa Barbara, California. Because I'd often wondered, how in the world do you get from Natchez, Mississippi to Santa Barbara, California? I mean, it's two extremes, you know, the segregated South to... Uh, to affluent Southern California. You know who else has that story? Who? Jackie Robinson. Ah. Jackie's mother had a brother who lived in Pasadena, and he said, you have to get out here as fast as you can. Right. And she brought the kids from Cairo, Georgia, to Pasadena. And it was probably around the same time as that. Probably, yeah. And yeah. your family opened a restaurant, right? That was their means of income? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, that was back at a time when, uh, when possibilities were unlimited for people who were determined and resourceful. Uh, believe it or not, my grandparents initially opened uh, a hand laundry. And I know this for a fact because I found the sign. I literally found the sign buried in my grandparents' garage in Santa Barbara. It said, Davis Hand Laundry. They took in laundry. That was their, their first enterprise. They did laundry. And then from the laundry, they opened a restaurant on Haley Street in Santa Barbara. And it was called the Deluxe Southern Kitchen. Because after all, they were from the South. And they were, you know, they knew Southern, southern food. And so they brought a bit of the South to Santa Barbara. Uh, That's good food. Yeah, fixing all of these decadent dishes for the residents of Santa Barbara to enjoy. So, Do you remember what some of that was? Oh. <laughs> Cornbread. Oh, it's gotta be, you know, that, that down home Southern food. Like I knew with breakfast there were always biscuits and grits. Grits. Yeah, yeah, you don't see a lot of that in Southern, Southern California. Well, they need but, more of it. Unless, yes, of yes, course, they, they put do. shrimp in it here. They, I'm sure they would. <laughs> so they opened a restaurant on Haley Street. Is that building still there? Do you ever? Go back? The building is still there. I've seen it. I, I, I often drive past it when I visit Santa Barbara. The building's still there, and I look at it, and uh, you know, I see my childhood. Uh, that's where I grew up as a little kid. I spent a lot of years at that address in Santa Barbara. And you grew up there in Santa Barbara, knowing nothing of whatever difficulty they may have had in Natchez. Yeah. You had a very different experience. My uh, growing up in Santa Barbara was, believe it or not, idyllic. I could not have picked a better place to have been born and to grow up. Santa Barbara was perfect. Uh, my wife, Adrian calls it this unique time capsule where if you wanted to find an American town where everything was nice, where everybody was nice, where everything was perfect, Santa Barbara, that's the place. Now, part of that was because we had a lot of affluent people who lived in Santa Barbara. Uh, a lot of the wealthy uh, would summer in Santa Barbara. Many had homes in Santa Barbara, Montecito, Hope Ranch. People do it today. Oprah has uh, a marvelous estate uh, in Montecito. 
uh, the late uh, producer-director Ivan Reitman had his production company in Montecito. I would often see him having breakfast at a coffee shop in Montecito when I made my visit my visits to Santa Barbara in recent years. Yeah, it is a, a Hollywood enclave. It really is. I remember when I was a kid, I knew that Santa Barbara had its fair share of wealthy people. And because a lot of the, we didn't have private schools in those days. I don't know why. I'm sure we might have had one or two. But most of the kids who came from wealthy families went to plain old Santa Barbara High School along with the rest of us unwashed. So, <laughs> so I had many friends who lived in posh mansions in Montecito, in, uh, who lived on estates in, in uh, some of the, uh, the enclaves uh, surrounding uh, the city of Santa Barbara. So it was not unusual to go to a friend's house and they lived in a mansion, and I kid you not, in a mansion. So I remember uh, going to one home where, you know, where most normal families would have the children's room. I would go to houses where they had the children's wing. <laughs> that's, that's how the people lived there. You never went home and said, Mom, when do I get my wing? Yeah, there you go. You know, it was a different world back then. Uh, today, it's not unusual to, you know, drive by home and see five cars in the driveway because Mom and Dad both have cars, all the kids have cars. But back when I was a kid, Everybody had a car. If they had a car at all, they had one car, mm -hmm. one. Well, my friends in Montecito and Hope Ranch, you know, you'd go to their home and they'd have five cars in the driveway. That was unusual back then. That meant you were, you were wealthy. Well, tell me about carrying that into when you left Santa Barbara, yeah. you went down to Los Angeles, the great city, two hours south yeah. by freeway. Right. And you thought to yourself, I want to be in the movie business, Yeah. right? Right. Was it that simple? It was to me. I mean, people often ask me, were you concerned about uh, trying to enter the business because of the color of your skin? And I, I often say, I never gave it a thought. It never occurred to me to think about, oh, I'm going to the Walt Disney Studio. What if they don't like me because I'm black? Why would I think that? Well, I found that many people did think that way. Uh, many people of color really were concerned about would I be accepted at the Walt Disney Studio because I'm Latino or because I'm Asian or because of any number of reasons. I never considered that. I, I thought, I wonder if I'm good enough. I wonder if I have the talent. I wonder if I have what it takes to be a Disney artist. It never occurred to me to think I would be turned away because of the color of my skin. I. The thinking like that was just ludicrous. So Floyd, tell me about the first day you walked onto the campus of the Walt Disney Studio, which was your first and only choice? Well, it was, it was a choice I had made since I, I was a child in middle school. I had decided when I was in middle school that I wanted to work for Walt Disney. I wanted to work at the Walt Disney Studio. I wanted to work for Walt Disney in particular, if that was all possible. But then, see, that was just a child's dream. That was just a kid dreaming about the future. Many children dream that. Yeah. But you had the advantage of being two hours north on the freeway, too. And I had the advantage of growing up in Santa Barbara, a unique community that was filled with creative people. Now, when I say that, I can tell you that Santa Barbara had its fair share of actors, you know, some retired, some not, composers, film composers, 
screenwriters, directors, uh, who all lived in Santa Barbara. Now, had I grown up in the Midwest and I had talked to the locals and relatives about going to Hollywood and getting into the movie business, they would have said, kid, you're out of your mind. You better go to school, learn a trade, earn a degree, and get a real job. That sounds like my father. Yeah. Keep going. But because I grew up in Santa Barbara, where we had as neighbors, you know, people in the business, they encouraged us. So uh, all of us kids who were in theater, uh, from middle school to high school, and we put on school plays, you know, everybody does that. But when we put on a school play, and our young actors, and our young dancers, and musicians, when we said we were going to go to Hollywood and, and go in the show business, we actually meant it. <laughs> well, you so it was within the realm of possibilities, yeah. you, wasn't it? It wasn't pie in the sky. There were yeah. people actually who worked in that business. Friends so of it mine was something who, that was within reach. Yeah, friends of mine who did theater in our little stupid high school plays literally went to Warner Brothers and, and, and were put under contract, you know, movie contract. Uh, kids that I did school plays with were in big-time movies like Giant, you know, at Warner Brothers. I mean, people I knew. Who was that? Do you remember? Who was that? Oh, her name. In high school, I knew her as Adele Crago. She, uh, Warner's changed her name to Carolyn Craig, and she did uh, a number of movies. But the most significant role she did was in the movie Giant, because that film with Rock Hudson, yeah. Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean, she was in that film, and 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 she did school plays, Santa Barbara High School. With there the, are many. There's and, probably a disproportionate number of yeah. movie stars who grew up in the Valley, yeah, in Los Angeles, yeah. north of town. Well, proximity means everything. You know, yeah. if if you're nearby the film industry. I think your chances are probably better about you know getting into the industry. So you walked into the door. In what year at Walt Disney Studios, and what did they tell you? Believe it or not, 1953. Uh, just graduated from Santa Barbara High School. I was 17 years old, and I brought my little portfolio down to the Disney Studio to show Because them. you had art experience already. I think you were working for a cartoonist up in Santa Barbara, so you yeah. didn't go in completely green. You knew where your skill set was, and you took that with you to Walt Disney Studios oh, in fifty. I didn't know that much. Yeah, I had, I had worked as a, an, an apprentice for Bill Wagen, who did a comic strip, and he lived in Santa Barbara. And that was my first job, even as a high school student. It wasn't a full-time professional job, but I was a kid still in high school, learning my way. And so I had a little bit of training, but not that much. So when I came to Disney, I was still a green, naive kid. And they looked at my portfolio, and they said, we're going to give you some advice. And that advice was? Go to school, learn how to be an artist. And you and did that. That's what I did. And you came back and became a member of the team in what year? Well, I uh, was in my third year at Art Center. Uh, I was still in school when I received a call from the Walt Disney Studio. And they basically said, kid, do you still want that job? What was that like when you walked through the halls of the famous animation building in Burbank, California, where the famed nine old men yeah. were working just one floor up, right? They were on the second floor. Of they were that, on the first floor. On the nine, first floor. Nine old men were on the first floor. And Walt was on the third. Walt was on the third floor. What three, was that like? Three H. Did you, know, did you not know enough to be fully intimidated? 
I knew a lot because I had I had become such a student of the Walt Disney Studios all through my childhood. I knew who these guys were. They didn't know me, but I, I knew who they were, even though I had never even seen most of them. I, I'd never met any of them. Uh, saw some of them, photographs, you know, newspaper stuff. But uh, truly we felt we were in Shangri-La. It was a ticket to heaven. Right, pinching I yourself. could not believe I was walking onto the lot of the famous Walt Disney Studio while we're actually here. And all of us felt that way. All of us kids, we were all a group of young boys and girls. And I have to add, don't forget, there were many young women as well as young men. It wasn't just a boys club. A lot of young women were part of our uh, that those early classes. So we were all kind of awestruck that we were at the Walt Disney Studio. And yet, we still had to prove ourselves. We had 30 days, we had one month to qualify as a Disney artist. Now, you're talking about classes, right? So they actually brought you in yeah. to really see what you could do. They brought us in, sat us down, put us through a number of uh, rigorous trials to see if we could cut it, to see if we could do the job. And at the end of 30 days, they would decide who they were going to keep and who they were going to let go. And you made the cut. Well, I'll tell you, I was feeling so confident. People asked me, and even my, I remember my father asking me this, weren't you concerned that you might fail? Weren't you concerned that you might not make it? And I remember telling my father, not meaning to be arrogant, but I remember telling my, my dad, Dad, I have no intention of failing. I felt that confident. I had, I had to be there. I had to do that job and there was no way in hell I was gonna fail. <laughs> That's a big part of it. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk about the trajectory your life took after yeah. those first few days at the Walt Disney Studio. Yeah. If you got a dream, you gotta believe it. And now we're back like a talk show. Floyd, you mentioned that your father was concerned. He was worried for you yeah. that after you auditioned or applied to work at the Walt Disney Studio, he was concerned that you would fail or he was worried for was your possibility, morale. Possibility of failure. Do you think that was Natchez talking? Oh, indeed. Keep in mind, my dad was a black man. <laughs> and uh, certainly aware uh, of the uh, issues that a lot of uh, black men faced at that particular time in America. It, it was a tough time for my dad. I didn't, I didn't realize it. I didn't understand it. At the, I was just a kid. I was naive. I didn't know about the uh, social issues uh, here in America. I, I do know that I used to wonder why my father was always so incredibly nervous when stopped by a policeman. Uh, and I, I used to wonder, why is my dad so afraid of cops? Is, is he a criminal? <laughs> is, he, is he hiding something? What, you know, what, what is it? But I never thought my dad grew up in Natchez, Mississippi. He, he grew up in the Deep South. He grew up where uh, if a black man was stopped by a policeman, boy, you better be on your P's and Q's because you could get into trouble real fast, even though you may not have done anything, you could still find yourself in trouble. 
And that's why my dad was always so nervous whenever a policeman would pull him over for a minor traffic violation or uh, something about, you know, tail light might have been out or went through a traffic, didn't stop properly at a traffic sign. And, and my father would just almost like totally freak out. And I was very calm and very, because I had, well, what does a kid have to worry about? And so I didn't understand. It took me years before I realized why my father was so nervous whenever policemen appeared on the scene. It's something, it says something about how your parents and our parents in general sought to shelter us from the past. Yeah, and they and did. how effective sheltering can be. Yeah, very true, and they did. My, my parents wanted to shelter me from uh, the issues they faced in, in the Deep South. Uh, it, it must have been difficult growing up in Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana back in those days where being a black citizen uh, meant you you really had to uh, you had to deal with society in a in a unique way I mean something that I never had to deal with in affluent Santa Barbara California so my childhood was so very different from my parents and grandparents yeah I can't think of two places more different than Natchez Mississippi and Santa Barbara California right yeah yeah. Wow, what a lucky stroke for you! <laughs> it was no, no and doubt thanks, about mom it. and dad. No doubt about it. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very, very lucky. So you started working at Disney officially. What year? Uh, February nineteen fifty-six. And what was going on there then? Disney was exploding. It was an incredible time for the Walt Disney Studios. Uh, Walt had just opened his park in Anaheim. Uh, Disneyland was only months old. It had just opened in July of 1955. So the park was bustling and, and there was a lot of activity uh, concerning Disneyland. Uh, and Disneyland was largely constructed in Burbank. Yeah. A lot of the rides yeah. and things That's were on the put Burbank. together on the sound stages in mm -hmm. Burbank. On the Burbank uh, back lot. The studio sound stages, the carpenter shop, the machine shop, the uh, electrical shop. We had all of these shops at the Disney studio because, after all, it was a movie studio where they had to fabricate movie sets and vehicles and all kinds of things. So they were totally equipped to build things, uh, unique items, for a theme park. Which shows you how closely linked and overlapping are movies and yeah. Disneyland, the theme yeah. parks. The they, I think they constructed... I think they constructed the riverboat, yeah. the showboat. I think they did. In one of the stages in yeah, Burbank. That's right. And then took it down, was it 50 miles south to Anaheim? Yeah, yeah. And the train cars, too. The rail, the railway cars were uh, constructed on the Disney Studio lot. A lot of the vehicles for the, uh, what is it, Autopia, they had to uh, fabricate those vehicles. Uh, we had a movie studio with, again, carpenter shop, machine shop electrical shop. We had everything we needed to build Disneyland right there in Burbank. Did you see any of that going on when you oh, were you there? Bet. Oh yeah, it was it was going on for years. It <laughs> it seemed to never stop because even after the park had been open for for years, we were still building things on the studio lot. So while all that was going on, TV production was going on, movie TV production, production was going on. Movie production. Yeah. Mickey Mouse Club. Mickey Mouse Club. We were doing a weekly show for ABC, Disneyland. That was a hour-long weekly show. Which actually also promoted Disneyland, Which promoted the, the place. Disneyland. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Good marketing on by Walt Disney. 
we were doing a daily show, uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. We had to produce content, both live and animated, for this daily show, the Mickey Mouse Club. Feature films, shooting films in, in the UK still, even at that time. Shooting films right here in Burbank. Uh, we had, I remember Fest Park was doing a movie at the time, feature film uh, being shot on stage two. Uh, the Disney studio was just a powerhouse of creativity. Your, your head must have been spinning. Oh, it was. It was, there was so much going on, so much to see. You, everywhere you turned, you were like, oh my God, look at that. Look at this, look at that. You know, as all, and, and all of us kids who were new and we were young you know, to the, the movie business, we were just in heaven. Yeah. I have to jump ahead again, Floyd. You went from Sleeping Beauty. You had a little stint in the Army. Yeah, a little bit. You came back to the studio. You worked on animated films up until and through Jungle Book. Jungle Book, right, yeah. My, and that my, was uh, a change in yeah. jobs for you, wasn't it? It was indeed. Uh, it's when uh, the boss decided I was in the wrong job. And the boss being? The boss being Walt Disney. Okay. I had always wanted to be a Disney animator. That was my dream. But in 1965, 66, Walt Disney decided that Floyd Norman was not an animator. Floyd Norman was a story guy. But it was Walt himself who tapped you. Yeah, it was indeed. See, that would be enough. (laughs) That would be enough. I could go to my reward just knowing that. Well, it's kind of funny. That's why nobody contested that decision, because it was made by the boss himself. It was made by Walt Disney. I, I, I realized that when I realized that I was having this incredible promotion, because it was a promotion that so many people wanted and couldn't get. So if anybody moved up the ladder and managed to find their way into the story department, you know, it was a highly sought after job. And if anybody, you know, stepped into that position, there'd be a lot of belly aching and people say, hey, how come he got the job? Why not me? I'm better than he is. I'm better than she is. You know, yada, yada, yada. So when I was uh, tagged for the job, nobody said a word. Everybody was in complete agreement. Why are they all okay with this decision? That's because Because the man with the mustache. It it came from Walt. Now let's explain. (laughs) Let's explain to people the difference is you went from actually drawing to coming up with the ideas that would be drawn. Essentially writing. Yes. Yeah. Which to me sounds like a better job. Yeah, it is a better job. Yeah. And you did that for Jungle Book. What were some of the ideas that you came up with, either yourself or in collaboration, for that famous movie Jungle Book that we'll remember? Yeah, you know, it's a funny story. Uh, When you work on a feature film, feature animated film, uh, unlike most films where there's maybe a couple of screenwriters, you're working with, I call an an army of writers. Well, there weren't that many of us, maybe uh, at the most a dozen or so. Uh, and, and usually it was more like six of us, more like a half dozen, because some of the guys would, uh, would leave um, and go on to other assignments, such as Ralph Wright left the uh, project, um, Al Wilson left the project. So it was mainly uh, Eric Cleaworth, uh, Dick Lucas, Vance Gary, myself, and um, Larry Clemens, and Ken Anderson to a degree. So there were just a handful of us writing this movie. 
And the way you write a uh, an animated film is you write visually. Uh, an animated film is uh, it's more images than words, even though we're writing dialogue as well. That's we, film too, actually. Yeah, I it's think. all it's 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 all writing. I mean, it's all storytelling. Whether you use uh, images or whether you use words, the, these things are just tools you use to tell the story. So. Um, we started at the beginning because Walt didn't like the story at all. Uh, the Jungle Book was adapted by Bill Peet, who was one of the finest Disney screenwriters we had. He had been with the company since the 1930s. Bill was no slouch. He was a master storyteller. However, even a master storyteller can disagree with the boss. And Walt Disney did not like Bill Peet's interpretation, uh, his, his adaptation of Kipling's novel, didn't care for it at all and wanted to start over. Because he knew what worked. He could look at this and say, that's what uh, Mr. and Mrs. America uh, and their yeah. kids are going to either respond to or not respond to. Exactly. But what were some of the moments specifically you remember working on? Huh, there were so many, and that's why it's difficult to to choose. I'm leading the witness, Your Honor. Yeah. I know that, yeah. but I know there was the specific moment with Ka. Yeah. And Mowgli. Well, one moment is when Ka, the, uh, when Ka has captured uh, Mowgli for the second time, and he's, he's hiding Mowgli up in the tree in his coils. And all of a sudden, he's interrupted by Shere Khan, the tiger, who interrogates him, basically, and says, have you seen, have you seen the man cub? I'm looking for him. And of course, Ka is like, no, no, I haven't seen him. I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't seen any man cub. And he's got the man cub up, up in his up, up in his coils up in the tree. So after an interrogation by Shere Khan, he says, you know, Khan says, okay, you know, you let me know if you see the the kid, because you know, I, uh, you know, I, I want him. And so then um, Ka attempts to hypnotize Mowgli by singing this little lullaby to him as he has fun with the kids, you know, playing playing around in his coils. And um, Vance, Vance and I me. did that, yeah. <laughs> well, we pitched that to Walt Disney, and Walt liked the sequence, but he said it needs something else, it needs something. And it was Walt's decision that that sequence needed a song. And we said, well, Walt, we don't have a song, and Walt said, don't worry, I'll have the Sherman Brothers write you a song, which they did. And a few days later, believe it or not, Robert and Richard Sherman had written Trust in Me, which we recorded that very next week, I think it was just a week later, over in recording stage A with my hero, Sterling Holloway, doing the voice of Ka. And that was a moment Special that comes moment. about in a story room from people like Floyd Norman and the team. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many people were hypnotized by that scene since 1967. <laughs> well, here's what's special to me. When I was a kid, my mother took me to see Walt Disney's Dumbo. And if you recall that the character that delivers these little baby animals to all the circus animals, it's a stork. And that stork is voiced by Sterling Holloway. You know, Mrs. 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 Jumbo, Mrs. Jumbo, you know, as he's going through the circus, the circus uh, railway car and looking for the mother. And it's Sterling Holloway. And I'm hearing this as a little kid at the movies with my mother. Now fast forward many years in the future, and here's Floyd Norman on recording stage A with the same actor, 
Sterling Holloway. And now he's recording for me. Isn't that incredible? Another dazzling moment. A kid's Of dream. many, many dazzling moments A you must have had in the Disney studio. Coming true. I mean, just unbelievable. This, this voice I heard when I was a child and the same actor is there with me on the stage. Yes, but not only that, doing a scene that you helped write. Doing a scene that I wrote, yeah, I know. Yeah, I had other occasions like this where I'm, I'm, I've had an actor, somebody that I, you know, that I really admire, and I had written the material and they're recording it, and I'm thinking, oh my God, they're recording my material. I remember doing a recording session once with a very funny guy, the late Jonathan Winters, who was a comedian, very funny man. And I was such a fan of Jonathan Winters, and he was playing one of the characters. Well, I had written the script. And so here I am on the recording stage, and my hero, Jonathan Winters, is performing a script I wrote. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I can't believe this. That this guy who, who I, I watched on television, that I've seen him perform in person, and now he's he's recording stuff that I wrote, you know, it's like, this is amazing. Who, who would have thought, you know? <laughs> but th this is what happens in your career. Yeah. Who would have thought? Son of Mr. and Mrs. Norman from Natchez, Mississippi. Yeah, yeah, you never know. All right, you coming know. up, we're gonna have a little bit of fun. Okay. We'll take just a little break here from this fascinating trip down memory lane through Floyd's seven decades in the business, not quite, but nearly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Floyd has an amazing memory. He has an attic for a memory. He remembers names and dates and locations far better than I ever did or will. I'll mention a movie and he'll mention an actor and not only mention the actor's name, but also start quoting from the film. So, like, for example, Floyd, Star Wars, James Earl Jones. Don't act so surprised, Your Highness. You wanted an mercy mission this time. Several transmissions were beamed <laughs> to the ship by rebel spies. I want to know what happened to the plans they sent you. There you you've got another career right I there. Met, I met James Earl Jones, and it, it, was, it was so funny because <laughs> he really does sound like that. He does. And, and he oh, makes, he does when he's just talking to you, well, yeah, ordering he's got, he's got this, dinner. He's got this incredible, resonant voice. I can't get as low as he can. I, you know, I can't push down that far. Because actually, my voice should have been deeper on that one. But uh, boy, he's uh, what a voice. Yeah, well, you could do it mm. if there's ever another radio drama I don't know. of Star Wars. I, don't know. I would need some uh, electronic help. So we're going to test your memory. Okay. This, this memory that I may have oversold. <laughs> um, so we're going to do this little thing where I've got a little device here, and it's going to be the Hollywood Walk of Fame roulette. And it's going, we're going to spin the wheel. It's going to come up on a name from the Walk of Fame, mm. and we're going to see how well you remember the name or what, what you Floyd remember about it. Get everything wrong. We'll edit that out. But okay. this is because whenever I go to Hollywood, there are, what, how many, almost 3,000 stars, 2,700 stars or something like that. And there are numerous names, and I always look at them and say, who? Who? What? what? Why? 
So we're going to do a little bit of that. I took some photographs while okay. I was out there last. So we're going to spin that and we're going to see what you know. <laughs> Ruth Roman. And there is a film camera in the medallion. Ruth Roman uh, was a Hollywood act, actor, um, I think 50s, 50s, 60s. And she did a lot of films, and I remember seeing some of those films. But what's really notable about Ruth Roman is that she was married to a Disney writer, artist, producer. You're kidding. Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh wrote the Mickey Mouse comic comic strip back in the, I believe, in the 1940s. Well, uh, you're kidding. That is a total coincidence. This is not a setup. Not a setup. Bill Walsh, along with his partner, Don DeGrotti, produced Mary Poppins for Walt Disney. Good Lord. He married a movie star, and that movie star was Ruth Roman. Ruth Roman, born Norma Roman, was an American actress of film, stage, and television, born in 1922. Very good. Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing. It is. It, you never know. <laughs> you get the steak knives. This is Hollywood. This is Hollywood. All right, here we go. Spinning again. Beep. All right. Furlan Husky. <laughs> Furlan Husky. Um, he was a sort of a country western kind of guy. Yes. And he must have appeared in a, in a number of uh, western films. Uh, his name was unique. That's why I, I never forgot that name. Uh, that's what stopped me. Yeah. Like Furlan Husky. Furlan Husky. He must remember that one. But but I, I honestly don't recall the films he did, but I certainly remember him and uh, the fact that he was quite well known. Correct. He began acting, appeared on the Kraft Television Theater, portraying right. himself in the 1957 film, Mr. Rock and Roll. Wow. <laughs> Furlan Husky. Okay, here we go. Slim Somerville. Oh man, that sounds like a name somebody just made up. <laughs> like a character in a Disney well, yeah, Western. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here, I want you to meet uh, Slim Somerville. Hey, how you doing, you know? Have I stumped you? You stumped me because... Uh, um, he was an American film actor and director best known for his comedies. However, he was born in 1892. Wow. So, yeah. The name is familiar, but I can't remember a thing about his career. Finally. Finally. Morris Chestnut. Morris Chestnut. More recent, much more recent. Yeah. Black actor, right? Yes. What? There's a connection here. There's a connection. He was in one of the first big films about the Los Angeles South Central scene. Like Boys in the Hood? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Born in 1969, 
Uh, he was in Boys in the Hood. Yeah. He was uh, on TV's The Enemy Within. Yeah. Um, he worked with Steven Seagal three times in mm -hmm. Under Siege 2, Prince of Pistols, and Half Past Dead. Wow. Very, very good, Floyd. You yeah. were expecting a far I, lower to, percentage of directors. I'm trying to think of the director's name who directed, who directed Boys in the Hood. He came to an award ceremony that we were doing in Hollywood one evening. And I remember he was so gracious because he was literally down the street directing a movie. And he, he took time off. He left the set of his film to come and uh, present an award at this show, and uh, we thought that was just so so gracious of him. Director yeah, John he, Singleton. John Singleton, that's right. John Singleton came to our award show to to hand out an award, and we thought, and he was he was he was working, he was filming a movie, and he left the set to drive over and and present this award, and then go back to work. And uh, yeah, Morris Chestnut. Incredible. Well, very good, Floyd. You did not disappoint. See, I well, was you know, just demonstrating. Slim Somerville sounds like they just made <laughs> it's that up. It's going to bother you now. They, they just made that out, but uh, yeah. There are, there are dozens and dozens of names I just don't recognize, so we'll have to do this again. Floyd, we've talked so much about your years with the Disney studio, but after that, you went on to work for Hanna-Barbera, which was another yeah. production company that my generation knows all about. They were the cartoons on Saturday morning. You bet. And you had something to do with a very famous dog. Scooby-Doo. So you were you on that first season? <laughs> I honestly don't remember when. I don't remember when I started Scooby-Doo, and I don't remember when I stopped it's just that Scooby has occupied a good portion of my life. Well, he's uh, it's a big favorite, even though when you get older, you figure out the mystery awfully early on. Yeah. But it still was just something that was great fun for us as little little kids. And we would have gotten away with it, too, had it not been for the meddling kids. I wish you could tell me you wrote that line. <laughs> again and again, how many times did they write it? <laughs> I tell people we did the same show several times. You kind of did. And nobody noticed. After that, you went on to have your own film company. Yeah. You created was, educational uh, like films. Naivete. And then leaping forward. Le leaping. You went back to the Disney studio. Yeah, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. So, <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, it's funny, I was working at Hanna-Barbera when I was offered the opportunity to come back to Disney, and I literally turned them down three times. Three times I said no, no, and no. But they were persistent, and they said, please, 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 please come back. We love you, we love you. So eventually I came back with an agreement that I would work for them for two years. Before I knew it, 10 years had passed. And when was this? This was in the 1983. Oh, so you've been there much longer than I was thinking. Uh, just before the new management came in, keep in mind, uh, the new management of Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came in in 1984. So I had just returned to Disney in 1983. Michael Eisner came in and basically revamped the entire studio. But did you work on films? Because I know you also no, did the I Mickey was, Mouse comic. 
That's what a newspaper doing. comic. I was writing. I was hired back uh, in Disney Publishing. What at the time Disney Publishing was not what it is today. It's a very tiny little unit. But I came back to work on. Uh, they they needed somebody who could write Disney. They couldn't find anybody. I thought, are you guys kidding? You can't find anybody who can write Disney stories. And they said no. And I thought, well, show me the stuff that you've got. So I sat down and I read several uh, uh, manuscripts. And I realized they were all wrong, that these writers did not know what a Disney story was. And I realized, oh, you're right. These guys don't get it. Whoever they are, they do not know how to write Disney. I didn't know that was something all that special. Well, and how me, does one write Disney? Give us a quick formula. The formula is you have to write simple stories that are engaging, that have a lot of personality and heart and that are true to the Disney legacy and, and uh, the Disney characters have to be respected. You have to know the Disney characters. If you don't know Mickey Mouse, you cannot write Mickey Mouse. I found Mickey Mouse easy to write and I wrote many, many Mickey Mouse stories because I knew Mickey. All in the comic, the I wrote, newspaper, uh, I, I wrote, uh, three panels. Text stories, uh, comic book stories, and I wrote the syndicated daily comic strip. Right. So I've written Mickey on almost every form, from film to TV to comics to print to whatever, many iterations. That's why when I worked on the Disney documentary, Mickey, the story of a mouse, uh, this is a character that I knew inside and out, through and through. Well, you come to that very conveniently, because that is one of your current projects, at least that you appear in. Yeah. This brand new Mickey Mouse documentary, which will appear on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, November 18th. And you're bringing to bear your experience with, with I Mickey. was going to say the mouse, but yeah. I really should say with Mickey the mouse. corporate icon. Well, yeah, well, th th that's only one. Of the, the mogul. Many, the one of many things that Mickey happens to be. He is a corporate icon, no doubt about that. But Mickey, Mickey Mouse is, is so real to children. And if you go to Disneyland, and you see a small child spot Mickey Mouse and the way they run toward Mickey, uh, they believe. And we see a wacky costume character. We see a guy or a girl wearing this suit with a stupid plastic head. <laughs> we see all of that. That's an expensive plastic head. It's an expensive plastic head. But what the children see, and more important, what the children believe it's Mickey Mouse. And, and they say Mickey, and they run toward this thing. They believe that's Mickey Mouse. Yes. I remember when I was leaving Disneyland once, not too long ago. Yeah. And Mickey was out there and saw me. Yeah. Walked over to me and stuck out his hand, and that made the day. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It also speaks well of Walt, doesn't it? Because it Walt really was Walt, was yeah. Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And also, not just little children. The new Mickey Mouse documentary is entitled... Mickey, the story of a mouse. Keep an eye open for that. Also, remember that Floyd's documentary of 2016, An Animated Life, is getting... Well, it's always been getting new lives, but it has yeah. its latest new life is on the Criterion channel. That's correct. An Animated Life. Floyd, we're out of time. Okay. We really skated over those last 40 or so years. But I do have one final question. You betcha. 
You're apparently on Bill Cosby's speed dial. <laughs> oh, Lord, am I ever. Am I Can ever. you talk about it? Yeah, I don't care. I can talk about Big Bill, Mr. <laughs> Mr. C, Mr. Mr. Uh, Be careful. Mr. Big Bucks. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we worked together when we were both young. Now that he's old, and we're around the same age, except I'm a little bit older than he is. I think he's like 85, so I'm 87. I'm a little bit older. In much better shape. Yeah, well, that's because my life has not been as exciting as his. Well, tell me about the moment when he reached out to you. It must have come as a surprise. This is after his release from prison. Yeah, yeah. No, no, he was still in prison. When he called me, he was still in prison because our phone calls were limited because he, he was only allowed so much time to make a phone call. And there are little beeps in the background. Mm, probably. But he called me with an intriguing idea. And uh, even though I was certainly not looking forward to working with Mr. C again after having done so many years ago, the idea that he presented was intriguing, and I, I thought, hmm, I might want to work on this. And so I did do some development work. I wrote a treatment. I eventually wrote a script and um, thought we were going somewhere. And then all of a sudden... The call stopped. As it is. As that it, is Hollywood. As it goes in Hollywood. Yes. One day, uh, you, you're getting a call on a daily basis. And then the, then the day comes when the calls stop and the person can no longer be reached. And it's like, if, you're, if you've been around as, as long as I have, it's no big deal. You what was that you like, though, getting a call? You must have, at first, you didn't realize who you were talking to. I realized right away. Hey, how's it going, Floyd? When you hear that voice, you know exactly who it I is. I mean, the wig, the And I'm thinking, oh, all I could think is, oh, no, no, not again. But for a lot of people, they would have they would have been so excited to get a call from a celebrity. Well, especially a, yeah. him at that time, because this was before his acquittal. Yeah. And yeah. before his release from jail. That's right. He was still in jail. We should mention that he was acquitted. Yeah, he was acquitted and uh, and released from prison. And you haven't heard but, from him uh, since? Uh, no, I, I heard from him after his acquittal. I mean, we, we continued working on this project for a number of months, so it, it wasn't a short-term thing. Like I said, I, I wrote, um, I eventually wrote about seven or eight treatments and about four scripts and uh, one script uh, the pilot was. You kept this very close to the vest, Floyd, because oh, no, no, I've known I you a it, long time, and I, yeah, you I didn't mention quiet. any of this. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't want it out there, especially since I didn't know. Well, now it is. Going. Yeah. Well, now it's. Yeah. But, but like, who cares? <laughs> well, may your phone continue to ring, even if it's not from the cause. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of work. I, I, I have no shortage of work, and I've got, like I said, I've got this thing maybe with Disney coming up. So I've got plenty to do. I've got, you know, I'm, I might want to consider retirement one of these days. No, you don't. Because I'm getting, I'm getting tired of working. You're immune so. to retirement. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. So you've that. got lots coming up in Florida. I can't thank you enough for uh, joining me again 10 years on.
Always a pleasure. And in another 10 years, let's let's do it again. Let's do it again. Yeah. I did try to condense what we did last time, this time, and I think I failed. Oh. <laughs> There's so much more to talk it's to you about. It's not easy. It's not easy. Floyd does, Floyd travels. He does talks. He speaks to the staff of Apple. Yeah. He does graduations <laughs> and Bob, it's does us. not. <laughs> What's that? I said bar mitzvahs. But, well, sure. <laughs> Whatever. You know. And I'll tell you this. Even Floyd is speaking to vast assemblies or the very smart people at Apple does not take a script. Stands up and just starts. And you can see why. He just all he needs is a starting point. Yeah. And he's got four or five story points that he can reach without any further prompting. It's what happens when you live as long as I have. <laughs> There's no end to your stories. Tell me this, Floyd. People yeah. are worried about the future. Many are. Yeah. You've seen a lot of futures. Yeah. Any encouragement or advice for us as we go into, as we are now in well into our third decade of the century? It keeps going. Sometimes it gets better, sometimes it gets worse, but it keeps going. So hang on and enjoy the ride. What better way to end? <laughs> Floyd, I'll see you in a, no less than 10 years. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you, Grant. It's been a pleasure. And we're back outside Warner Brothers. Hand to God, I did not set up that Ruth Roman bit. I did see her name on the Walk of Fame, did not recognize it, and that is the extent of it. She was one of four names that I put before Floyd. Not only did he correctly identify that she had been involved, not married to, but involved with a man named Bill Walsh, but that Bill Walsh had been a producer for Walt Disney and wrote the Mickey Mouse comic, which Floyd Norman himself was involved in. That's kind of amazing. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And that's all I'll say about that. Anyway, thank you, Floyd. Also, the Bill Cosby stuff, that was interesting, huh? Now, for my next guest. This is a young guy that I met uh, probably 10 years ago now. I saw him, a hungry unknown, in a rehearsal hall preparing for Shakespeare in the Park in Thousand Oaks, California. He's playing Laertes, which is probably the third fiddle to Hamlet in the play Hamlet. Difficult role to pull off, and he did it brilliantly. I don't think he knew how good he was, and I was afraid to tell him because I didn't want it to, you know, go to his head or jinx him or make him uh, self-conscious. But he was terrific, and I remember thinking, this guy is going places, and he did. His name is Miles Gaston Villanueva. Miles has been working in Hollywood pretty consistently for the last 10 years. He came to Hollywood at 30 which I think a lot of casting directors would think that's a little long in the tooth to start. But he did. He took his time. He learned his craft. And then he started up. He started meeting casting directors. And he has been working in Hollywood ever since. He has been supersonic on The Boys, the series The Boys. He played Owen on the Nancy Drew series. He was in something like 87 episodes of The Young and the Restless. And he played Lyle Menendez chilling role on that Law and Order, Order series about the brothers who killed their parents. He's got a lot more coming up and uh, he's my next guest and I'm thrilled that he wants to talk and we're going to talk about what it's like to be young and in Hollywood and to succeed. I know he would love to be more successful and I think he will be but what does it do to your head? What does it do to your soul? 
to have so much riding on every role uh, and then to get these roles. How does that feel? I imagine great highs and great lows. Anyway, we're going to talk about all of that stuff on Grey Zone. Miles Gaston Villanueva coming up on episode three on S1E3. Thanks all for joining. Remember to leave a comment uh, wherever you hear Grey Zone. My name is Gray, and this is Gray Zone. Gray Zone. Floyd is Darth, take one. Don't act so surprised, Your Highness. You want an mercy mission this time. Several transmissions were beamed to the ship by rebel spies. I want to know what happened to the plans they sent you. There you you've got another career.